Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same? Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. So I'm sitting in in the office by the beach. We're making it sound very glamorous, having been squeezed in between two international calls with writers, producers and directors. But my guest today is Judy Levine, and it's so lovely to, to have you on this, um, on I'm, this show. I'm thrilled to be here, actually, yeah. with you, Ella. It's, this is very exciting for Isn't me. Isn't this cool? Oh. Yes. Um, so, look, I want to, I'm going to start really basically. So forgive me if I sound really um, ignorant. What is a producer? What is it that you do? I think the, the role of a producer varies enormously, and when you look at films or television or anything these days in the media, there's often a long list of producers and everybody's asking that question, you know, what did all those producers do? Uh, and in some cases, if they're executive producers, they've maybe brought an important element to a project, whether it's a connection to a member of cast or they've brought in some money or maybe they've facilitated an incredible location and they've done that in exchange for a credit on the film. Mm. Um, uh, if they're... Uh, a co-producer, perhaps they've been there for part of the process but not all of the process and brought certain elements to the film, uh, whether it's their skill base or something else. Mm. Um, and uh, if it's a producer-producer, which is a very sort of coveted uh, credit on a film because um, if, you, if you look at the bigger picture and you want to imagine being at the awards season, only a certain number of producers can go and actually accept the awards on stage. Right. And so, um, and if you're, you know, the producer who's found a project or an idea and developed it from beginning to end, which can be a process of anything from, you know, five years to 20 years, then you deserve and want, you know, you want and you, and you want to be honoured for that producer credit. Mm. Um, so uh, in general, in my case, um, I am what I would regard as a creative producer. I do have a lot of, um, imp you know, input and I try to be very hands-on with the creative process. Um, and I am also a very, you know, I mean, I'm a practical producer in terms of making things happen and facilitating things for a project to get made. So what do you mean by that? Do you mean like the casting, getting the right casting director, getting the right director, getting the right location? Is that what you're talking about? I'm talking about, yes, all of that. Uh, it might be a case of I have a project, uh, perhaps I've come across a script, and so I want to then put together the creative team, the director, the writer, you know, the, uh, maybe that writer doing a new draft, 
um, other producers to come onto the team uh, and then help to raise the finance for that project and in particular bring in cast because so much of the of filmmaking is now cast driven in terms of being able to finance a film mm. that I would be involved in all of those elements uh, to get the project to the next stage where it's financed enough to actually make the movie. Um, and so in that situation, I, you know, I might have found a book and, then, and therefore I'm looking for the writer or as I said, I might have a script and uh, then I need to have a director come on board, preferably a director who has a reputation that would attract good cast. Um, or I might go out to cast first, mm. but in most cases they're going to want to know who's the director. Uh, so it's, it's generally, I think, in my humble opinion, better to have a director on board first and then go out to cast. Um, and so you're trying, you know, you, you want to be sure that the script has its characters defined well and interesting enough to attract a terrific actor or an actress. Um, do you have a vision of, how, of what you think the movie is <coughs> at this point? Or do, I you, do, well, or do you then collaborate with the director as to what they want? Or? Um, I think that is a collaboration. But if I, for me, if I need, when I read a script, if it speaks to me, if it moves me, if I can imagine it while I'm reading it, uh, then those are the elements that make me want to, you know, get involved with the project. Mm -hmm. And that's a big decision because films do not happen overnight. And you have to be able to say, is this something I'm willing to commit maybe the next seven years of my life to? in order to get the script exactly where it needs to be, mm. in order to go through the frustrating process of attaching cast that will help you raise money, and then the frustrating process of trying to piece together all the money. Um, there's a juggling act because often you will go to, say, a manager or an agent of somebody uh, to ask about a particular availability of an actor, and their questions are going to be, is it financed and do you have a start date? Both of which are tricky because you may be financed in theory because you've got what's referred to as soft money. You might have some government funding or some government tax credits, which, you know, aren't a tangible piece of money in a bank account, but money, you, you know, they're assets that you can borrow money against. Um, and you might find that um, you can't really have a start date because it's dependent on when your actors are going to be available. Right. So you're flexible about that. But you may actually have one actor already in place who is only available in a particular window and that means you do actually have a start date because you're going to the next people in line. Right. So uh, when we did the sessions, for example, the first actor that we attached to the film was John Hawkes and we, I think, attached him in February and he had a small window that we could film in April, May. And so then when we were going to... Um, actresses to play opposite him and they asked us are you financed do you have a start date we were able to say yes to both those questions and ha how did you get Helen Hunt on board for that well it's interesting with Helen because uh, she um, uh, had not actually been on our sort of first list of people to go to uh, and uh, in fact she heard about the project through a friend of hers who had auditioned for a smaller part and who had read the script and called her up and said, I've read this script that I think you would really love and sent it to her, um, which I guess doesn't happen 
all the time because quite often, uh, you know, well, people I have who to are sign cast... a lot of NDAs for things. I exactly. can't sell. I can't pass them on. And quite, it doesn't usually happen in that yeah. way. I <sighs> often, often actors will only get a few scenes and not mm. a whole script. So in this particular case, I'm not one hundred percent sure how come she had the whole script. We were fairly sort of inexperienced, so it was out there. I suppose it's possible the casting director had just sent it to her. I don't mm. know why. Was she, so um, was she number two to come on board? No, no, she was reading for another role altogether. She oh, was just she reading. No, but for, Helen Hunt. So Helen Hunt was number two to come on board. Okay. I mean, basically Helen came after us. We got a phone call from her agent saying Helen Hunt would like to meet with Ben, and it okay. was like, oh my god, you know, my heart's going crazy, and mm. and I'm sort of going, oh, you know. So and I. Ben uh, Lewin is Judy's husband. Yes. And so Ben is director. the director attached yep. to the film, uh, and happens to be my husband and producing partner. So uh, Ben, um, so I sort of said, well, absolutely, you know, even though we still weren't sure that we saw her in the role, with, you know, with all due respect to Helen and her incredible talent, um, it's just, you know, you sometimes have somebody else, you know, in, in mind and you have to kind of make a quantum shift uh, when you're thinking, you know, trying to sort of think about somebody who has suddenly been put in front of you. But Helen and Ben met twice. Helen absolutely got the material. She was very passionate about what we were trying to say with this particular story. Um, you know, it's a story about a, a man who had polio, who's basically in an iron lung for most of his life and, and most of his days, who, and based on a true story, and you know, who wanted to actually basically get laid, mm. um, and who had a relationship, <coughs> excuse me, with a woman who was a sex surrogate. And, and the, the initial title of the film was The Surrogate. The initial title of the film was The Surrogate and it went to the Sundance Film Festival as that title and won two major awards there, the Audience Award and a, a special jury prize for the ensemble cast as that title and then was released a few months later as The Sessions. Um, and I think it's interesting because, you know, every element of the film industry is, is such a challenge and just the fact that there was a title shift you know, also changed the nature of, of the way people remembered it from Sundance. We had to really work that into the campaign, uh, you know, that this was a film that had won, you know, big awards mm. um, as the surrogate around the world and not as the sessions. Um, but we did take it to the rest of the world, film festivals, etc., as the sessions, and Helen was nominated for an Oscar with the title The Sessions, and both Helen and What John... got it that year? Because she should have got it, but there was another film that came out that did very well that year. Can you help uh, So me I'm out? trying to think because we were, I think it was Jennifer Lawrence for Silver Linings Playbook. Okay, okay. I've so, got you. you know, another terrific performance. I mean, it mm. was quite, that was a year, who would have known? I mean, had our film come out the year earlier when there was, uh, uh, you know, not as many films of high caliber, uh, one journalist actually said, um, if, the, if this film had been released last year, the artist would have been toast because that was the film that scooped the Oscars yes. that year, yeah. you know. And uh, the year we uh, went into that awards, you know, race, basically, um, there was also, there was Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, there was Silver Linings Playbook, there was Beasts of the Southern Wild, there was um, a Argo. I mean, you know, they were just all incredible movies. Right. And so it was impossible to, you know, I mean, that was a very tough, 
market to be competing in. Yeah. Um, I, I think more sadly is that John Hawkes should have been nominated for an Oscar yes. as well, yeah. and he was not. And that was a big disappointment, I think, to all of us and to a lot of people who, who contacted us after the nominations came out to say mm. that that was you know, a little bit of a travesty. But, you know, Hollywood works in strange ways. I think the award system is very political. I've learnt that, you know, more recently. And I do believe that... Um, you know, you have to kind of be really tough about all those sorts of things and just go with it. I think, you know, John was very philosophical about it. He's a terrific, not only a terrific actor, but a terrific person. And he basically sort of, you know, we all kind of moved on. They were mm. both nominated and won the Independent Spirit Awards, which was very exciting. And we certainly had incredible acclaim everywhere else. So, mm. you know, you, 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 you thrive on that. Yes. One of my earliest Hollywood experiences... Um, because you know you come here from Australia, and and your friend, my friends come and visit me, and they say, "Oh, have you seen any stars?" And I joke with them. I say, "Only when I look in a mirror, darling." Um, <laughs> but you do have those moments where you meet people here, and you suddenly discover that they are part of something that you have held in very high esteem. And I was at this function, and I was introduced to you, and I was like, oh, oh the sessions, oh my gosh, you know, because I loved the film. So I went all a little bit fangirl. Um, of course, that was years ago now, Judy, so we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sort of sitting here thinking, you know, I'm just this girl from Melbourne who lives in a house by the beach with three kids and I have to make school lunches and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I'm really no different to you. And I, you know. Know, I don't always understand that sort of, you well, know, because the way the work people that... see me or perceive me as being part of that milieu that, even deserves that kind of well, you know, reaction. You know, but. you just you just do, and you save it for for once the lunches are made and you've walked out the door. Um, you lead me into a question that that I did want to ask you though, and that is the business model for the producer, because you know most of us, if we if I if I'm on a on a um, on set for a film or, or TV or whatever. I'm going to get paid for the day or there's going to be a contract for the week or whatever. If I do a voiceover, I'm going to get a contract or an hourly rate or whatever. But as a producer, these years and years and years and years that you spend getting a project up and then getting the soft finance and attaching the various people to the project, when does the money kick in? It's a very interesting question because uh, I was just at, a, at the Screen Producers Conference in Melbourne recently and uh, at a talk by a very, very, I mean, really top of the top of the league producer called Donna Gigliani. She produced uh, most recently Hidden Figures mm -hmm. um, uh, and she was uh, a producer on Silver Linings Playbook and she was a producer on Shakespeare in Love. And, uh, and she was making this point about that producers need to start telling other people, particularly agents and managers and whatever, how much they're earning because it's so little in relation to everything everybody else is earning mm -hmm. um, that the world doesn't quite understand. And the truth is that for all those years that you're working, you don't actually get paid what you ought to be paid. Um, you don't usually get paid on budgets the way you ought to be paid. And the only time that money really kicks in in a way that you deserve 
is if you're lucky enough, and it's really a bit like lightning in a bottle, to have a film that you've made for not very much money that then makes a lot of money at the box office. So, um, and I guess if you continue to do that, you can probably demand higher fees out of your budget. So I'm sure that, that Donna gets paid extremely well, plus she will have made a lot of money out of the back end. Mm. Um, I, so, so and by back end, you mean negotiating a, a percentage of profits after marketing and distribution precisely. and so on, Which can be contractually very tricky because who's the one determining the profit? Well, exactly. I mean, you sort of, you know, you talk about points, which really just means a percentage of what is the producer's net profit, you know, so that means that the money comes in, which might be profit, which is then going, you know, first you have to pay back your investors, then you have to pay, you know, uh, there might be some other debt associated with the film, then there's, there's other things that will come out, you know, maybe taxes or whatever else that has to go. And so it's after all of that, whatever is left, then you're sharing the producer's net profit with anybody else who has a, a you know a percentage out of the producer's mm. net profit and you know i guess the more experience you have with that the tighter you can negotiate how much you share that now with the sessions we were very generous because we didn't know and we never expected to really make a lot of money and in and hindsight just for, for people listening with a budget of 1 million and ultimately it was 9.1 million worldwide Yes. Uh, well, we sold it for six, which was the main thing. I mean, and I think it right. brought in nine. But the truth is that, that after Fox Searchlight paid the six million, they then spent like 10 million on, okay. on putting it out there. Right, so, right, right. Uh, you know, we, didn't, we, you know, we get, uh, you know, the director will get residuals, the writer will get residuals, uh, the producer doesn't necessarily see anything else out of that money from the back end. And let, so, you know. Do the, you have an agent that negotiates that for you or do you negotiate? that for yourself? No, we have an attorney that does those negotiations okay, for us. Um, there are producers reps, agencies will rep producers. Uh, that's usually in relation to a particular film uh, where they've come on board and they might in fact be the sales reps for the film. Um, uh, but producers per se, as far as I can work out, and I'm still trying to sort of work that out, producers don't really have representation. I mean, uh, because of my relationship with Ben as a writer-director, uh, uh, we are kind of produced, we're, we're represented as a team by ICM. But if you look at my IMDb page, it doesn't have me listed with ICM. It'll have Ben listed with ICM. Right. But I call them, I have meetings with them. They give me advice. They can introduce me to prospective investors or prospective you know, production companies that might want help to develop a project. So they've got my back. Um, uh, but when it comes to contractual stuff, you know, I have my attorney is the one who does that sort of thing. Mm, mm. Um, and, uh, and, and every time we do a film, I learn more and more about managing my own contracts. I mean, I read them very thoroughly. I pick up things. I ask for more things. I, I see things that I think might come back to bite me down the road. But I never go into a film assuming I'm going to actually see any money once the film is released. So... I hope to try and be able to get a reasonable wage out of the budget, but that's tough, you know. I think the producers are always the ones who don't want to take too big a wage because then everybody else will think, oh, well, if they're getting paid that, then I want to be blah, blah, even if they don't totally know. You know, often it's, you know, you, you have to be transparent about some of these things. and. 
you know, producers are always the one who, well, I really want to see the movie made, so I'm going to cut back a little bit or I'm going to take a bit more of my fee and put it into some department that's really hurting or, you know, it just happens that way. Are, are producers almost the wives of the show in that you're behind the scenes, without you nothing gets done, you facilitate you organise, you schedule, um, is it kind of like that? It, I, I would say it is like that. Um, I think that you are often the diplomat on set, you know, or, or in the process having to sort of balance the way the dynamic is between various people. Uh, I think you are overseeing everything and doing that multitasking thing of keeping an eye on every department. Mm. I mean, you bring in as many skilled people in each department who you feel will be able to manage, um, you know, on your behalf. But you still have to be the one to make sure you've got your finger on the pulse of everything. And unfortunately, that business of choosing the right people goes terribly awry sometimes. So uh, when we were doing the sessions, I actually had a day job during that film. I, I didn't get paid at really? all. Neither Ben nor I got paid anything until the film got sold. And, uh, and you know, we had three kids and a mortgage, so one of us had to have an income. So I was working a day job and we partnered up with some people that I thought knew what they were doing. And, you know, one of them really didn't know what he was doing. And while we were filming, and it wasn't a very long shoot, shoot I mean, it was only really 22 days. Right. Um, you know, and wow. we started hemorrhaging money. I was, you know, I suddenly went in there after two weeks and said, hang on a second, why is the art department allowed to, you know, being allowed to do this? And why isn't anybody stopping such and such from happening? And, and I, you know, but by that point, we were sort of already halfway into a four-week shoot and, you know, you really could almost not pull the brakes back that easily. Uh, so instead I was coming home at night and calling people and raising more money to cover the money that was sort of we were overspending. Um, so we had, you know, I mean, that is the sort of, you know, it's it's definitely the wife, the purveyor, the, you know, the, the, the diplomat who's managing everything. Um, uh, you have to have all of those skills. You do mm. have to be a strong multitasker. And if you're lucky, you've got some sort of creative overview as well. And I was on set during that particular film as much as I could be, which meant that sometimes I played hooky from my day job and went to the set during the day. We were shooting a Tuesday to Saturday week, so I was always on set on Saturdays and any time we were on night shoots. So mm. uh, I was there as much as I could be. And you know, by the time I realised that this particular line producer was definitely not doing his job, um, I, I couldn't really do all that much about it. Uh, you know, we just had to manage as well as we could, and we did. Um, and then sort of tightened our belts a bit in, in post-production in order to save a bit of other money. Yeah. Uh, but people, by the time we got to that stage and we had this incredible cast of John Hawkes, Helen Hunt, William H. Macy, yeah. it was easier to ask people to throw in a bit of money to help keep us afloat. I want to talk to you about the fabulous Sundance story. Um, and then I'm going to come back to something about the the whole husband-wife thing within the industry. Um, so Sundance, so you've got this little film uh, called The Surrogate, which will become The Sessions. This is 2012 for listeners um, who haven't quite clocked onto this one yet. So you take your film to Sundance. Take up the story from there. Um, well, we... 
really weren't, weren't experienced with, with Sundance or the, we'd been out of the festival circuit for a long time. Uh, and in the past when we'd taken films to festivals, we'd been with other producers and they'd really managed everything. So it was a very steep learning curve. Uh, one of the things we realised was that, you know, we had to take our stars, you know, it's very important to have your stars there to support the film. Uh, it sends a very important message. Do we need to...? No, 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 dogs are, dogs are acceptable on the podcast. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> um, we basically, uh, what we did was we raised more money in order to pay for Helen and John and Bill Macy and you have to send them, you know, business or first class, put them up in accommodation, they get them plus one, all that sort of thing, um, and organise accommodation for ourselves. And I think the key decision we made was that we were being sort of fated by various publicists, you know, from we'll do it for free to the most expensive but most experienced publicist, which we decided, you know, I felt very strongly that we should throw everything we could at this opportunity. So mm -hmm. um, we went with, a, you know, an expensive publicist, but I knew that that person would handle the film well and they would have a big team because when you're in a film festival, not only is your film screening, but so are 12 others. Yes. And you want to have... The distributors there you want to have the press there and you have to be able to get their attention to make sure that they are going to turn up at your premiere screening um, and so you need a team of people who are calling them the night before and saying are you going to be at this screening you know this is the one you want to come to this is going to be the breakout movie you know you'd be silly to miss it etc etc and so you know that was the first major step about making sure that we had some kind of presence there because you can go with just you know a few dvds in your backpack and hope that people turn up at your screening and maybe you'll get the attention you want but i you know i didn't want to take that risk i wanted to sort of hedge our bets so we went and we had no idea at that point what how the film was going to be received hardly anybody had seen it pretty much anyone who saw the film would have had something to do with the film so their opinion was not entirely unbiased and with Sundance you don't submit to any other festivals before it's done Sundance do you no I think they prefer to be the you first, know, your the first, first one screen. okay good 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 so I so basically um, we we went up there really not knowing what to expect and we had some meetings with our sales reps who were trying to give us managed expectations about, look, you know, it's a very quiet festival this year. People are being very reserved about the way they might uh, buy a film because, you know, one of the things you want when you go to a festival like that is to sell the film to a distributor who's going to, you know, take it out across the US and the rest of the world and mm. preferably for a good amount of money. You know, I used to go to bed at night thinking, oh, just please, can we have enough money to pay back our investors? And then it was, and after that, could we please have enough money to pay back the investors and then us a wage? And then, please, could we have enough money to pay back the investors and then us a wage and then maybe make a profit? That would be really right. terrific. You know, they were my three sort of go-tos. So um, we went up there, you know, with the sales agents saying to us, um, you know, don't expect too much from, you know, the first screening. It might take a few days to negotiate selling the film, etc., etc. Uh, the first screening was at the Eccles Theatre, which holds about 1,700 people. Um, you know, you know, we had Helen up there who was about to walk into a screening of her basically naked for an hour and a half in front of this audience. You know, we were terrified that people wouldn't get the tone of the film, which was, you know, 
irony, which in, in America doesn't necessarily go down all that well. Um, and we sat there in this huge audience, you know, waiting to see, you know, like 10 minutes in if people would get the jokes and they started to laugh and then they did sort of go with the whole thing. And it was really, you know, just such a sort of an emotionally intense period sitting there during it and then at the end of the film we had two standing ovations and people were crying and there was this sudden incredible flurry about texts flying around saying so and so wants to see the film you know uh, this this producer who wasn't at the screening wants to see it these distributors who weren't at the screening want to see it you know quick you know send our daughter Alex who at the time was in her 20s and working with us you know send her back to the condo to get some DVDs and she has to come over to the CAA condo with those and and we need to get you to press and then we have to get you over here and it just sort of, it was this, you know, flurry of a bidding war that we'd been told was never going to happen. So hoped for, totally unexpected, and it just went off. It totally took off. And so so we go off to do press for a little bit, and then we go over to the CAA condo where there is basically myself and Ben and our producing partner, um, Ben's, uh, Ben's agent at the time, who was a, an, a lapsed lawyer, uh, our, our, our attorney, uh, and two people from CAA. So whatever that was, seven of us or something. Uh, and then the two reps from CAA who were starting the negotiations um, and we started getting phone calls about, well, um, basically we're going to eliminate anybody who is giving us a really low ball offer and, and narrow it down to the ones who are starting to negotiate at something that we regard as a reasonable figure. Um, uh, and so they narrowed it all down to two and then they narrowed it down to um, basically Fox Searchlight who had said they were only really willing to negotiate if it was an exclusive negotiation, you know, and so we decided, okay, that's fair enough, we're going to do that. So this is, you know, the afternoon is moving along, we're supposed to be at a party in the evening which is in honour of the film, um, and I'm, uh, you know, sort of, we're there in this condo not knowing what to do, you know, I mean, the nerves are kind of at absolute peak level, um, you know, uh, Ben as writer-director is sort of trying to sit there being calm and trying <laughs> try to be zen, uh, you know, uh, the other two, the agent and the other producer are madly on their phones, the calls are all coming in on my phone, so I'm terrified to even touch my phone, all I'm doing is leaving it sitting there, plugged into an outlet so it's fully charged, you know, on speaker kind of thing, and I don't know what to do with myself, and there's a small you know, pool table, and all I can think of is I'm just going to actually play pool with myself so that I can focus on getting balls into the pockets instead of actually the anxiety that this is causing, right. waiting for more calls to come in yes. about, well, now we're at this stage, and what do you think about this? And we've got this element and that element, and you know, so. And then I'm getting texts from people saying, well, so are you too cool to come to your own party? And I can't tell them that we're in the middle of these negotiations because yes. it's all supposed to be very secret. Um, uh, and eventually it gets down to something very sort of close. And the CAA people call us and they say, look, OK, so you should go to the party, but keep your phone close because we're down to the last couple of you know, detailed points. And then we will call you at the party to tell you, you know, where it's at. 
and basically we go to the party and I've got this, you know, at the time I, w I was still using a Blackberry and it was kind of, you know, making this imprint on my hand yeah. because I'm terrified to let it go or that I'll miss the call. And it's kind of quite noisy at the party and finally I get this call and they say, right, you know, can you be somewhere quiet? So there's myself and Ben and his agent and this other producing partner and the four of us go and we stand on this little wooden staircase at the back of the building where the party is and our attorney's on the phone with us and he's saying, well, they've offered $6 million for the movie and I'm like, you know, oh my God. And I'm trying to sort of mouth this to the other three, you know, and I'm holding up six fingers and yeah. sort of, you know, and it's like, who's going to say no? So, you know, everybody's nodding their heads. Yes, say yes, say yes. So we say yes. And they say, so, so that's basically the deal done. And then they say, right, okay, so um, now you have to go back to the condo and wait for them to send the deal memo. And, uh, you know, and so then we go back to the condo and there's a whole lot of people there that have come for the festival who are associated with the film, you know, investors and family and friends. And, you know, so there's about 20 of us there and I'm waiting for the email. And the email comes in and then we have to read all, you know, and I'm like, who's got the focus to really, and by this stage, it's like getting towards midnight, you know, and I have to read every detailed point and make sure we agree with everything um and, you know and it's it's only three pages but so we do all that and then finally they say okay deal's done we're going to send a limo for you to come and pick you up so you can come down to the fox searchlight condo and sign the papers okay so by this stage it's half past 12 at night you know and we're driving through the snow to get down to their condo and the twinkling lights of Sundance and various people leaving parties or whatever they're doing and we meet the people at Fox Searchlight and we have a drink and we sign this piece of paper and then we get back in the limo to go back up to our condo and it's just so surreal I mean you're sitting in this car going through the snow in the middle of the night with a three-page document that you've signed that's basically given away the film you've just spent five years working on. Now I'm going to get emotional. Um, and you kind of try to absorb all of this. And then you see something that is even more incredible, which is that, you know, the film was about this man called Mark O'Brien. And we're looking at this piece of paper that, that's, and it's signed. M. O'Brien and the woman who is the head of finances for Fox Searchlight, her name's Megan O'Brien and she signed the document. So anyway, it was incredible. It was incredible. This is Take Fountain with Ella James. And you're going to Sundance again in January. So <laughs> let me so take a deep breath. <laughs> Because it's a while since I've told that story. And, it's so beautiful. Um, and it was incredible because we had our family, you know, two of our three kids were with us at the time. So that was, you know, and they'd lived through the whole experience with us. So to be there with them, sharing all of this meant yeah. enormous amount. Um, and so now, five years later, well, it'll be six years, I guess, from 2000 and, well, 2000 2012 to, to 2018. 2018. Yeah, um, Sundance is in January. We're going back to Sundance with a film called The Catcher Was a Spy that we shot in Prague earlier this year. Uh, very different film. It's a big spy movie. It's got a very big cast. It's a much bigger budget. It's not in competition, so that's you know a different experience for us again. Uh, it's not a film that we were nurturing from the very beginning as we did with the sessions. Uh, some uh, producers, uh, uh, Tatiana, um, uh, Tatiana Kelly and Jim Young, uh, who have been with this project probably for more than 10 years, uh, 
came to uh, us a few years ago really looking for Ben to direct and then I came in as a co-producer with them. Uh, so, um, and then there's a lead producer who helped raise all the finance for the film. So there's a whole team of people going, uh, you know, the, the sort of the buck stops with somebody else rather than with us. Mm. Uh, in terms of the decision making about you know how they're going to do that deal making once we get up there, and this film Catcher was a Spy is uh, is not in competition, so it's in the premiere section. So we will be screening a premiere there with our cast, and then having other screenings. Some of it will feel the same, and some of it will be different. You know, mm. I mean, I think the business side of things will be quite different for us. Uh, the the sort of the the, the fun of, of people seeing your film and getting audience reactions and being part of the filmmakers up at Sundance, which is a very small select group. I mean, there's only 16 films in each section, so only 16 films or maybe less are premiering at Sundance and then there's 16 films in the US competition section and 16 films in the more or less, don't hold me to those figures exactly, mm. but or those numbers. But I, I don't but, think people... Um, I mean, the reason I love hearing these stories is I don't think for many people that they, outside of this, outside of the business in Hollywood or, or Australia, have the understanding of what it actually is and what it actually takes. Well, I mean, you've got another one coming out in cinemas January 26th, January yes, 8th. Yes, on Australia Day, as it happens. Please stand by. Please stand by, yes. So please stand by... Um, uh, is a film with Dakota Fanning and Tony Collette, another Australian in there, which is terrific. Um, uh, and it's a very different story again. It's a charming story about a young autistic woman who's on a Star Trek road trip thing. She's written a, a screenplay to get into a competition and she ends up having to uh, run away from her assisted living facility in order to get the script in on time at Paramount Studios. Yep. She gets, leaves San Francisco and goes on this road trip to Hollywood. And Dakota Fanning is terrific in it. Um, uh, the trailer is amazing. The trailer is fantastic. It's out there now. I don't know. I guess people can see the trailer in Australia, depending on when this goes to air. Um, uh, you know, on iTunes and YouTube. And I'll, I'll stick IMDb it up on the um, on the Take places. Fountain um, website on um, on the Facebook page. Yeah, so, and so I've had it up that. on the Such Much Films Facebook, you know, Facebook page yes. and IMDb put it on their Facebook page, which has got six and a half million followers. Brilliant. So I'm pretty sure it must be accessible all over the world. Uh, Apple had it on their homepage and it's and it was the fav most favourite trailer that day. And now it's in a list of most you know best trailers from la you know from this week to have watched. And it's getting a lot of attention because it has this whole Star Trek theme. It has the whole kind of you know autistic world theme uh, it has a terrific writer's theme you know she's a she's a writer who really champions how hard it is for writers to mm. to, to write scripts and get them you know seen and read and all of that sort of thing and uh, we screened it at the Austin Film Festival and it had a terrific audience response there so we're very excited about that release um, and uh, and so I think you know uh, you know, taking films to film festivals is a great way to spread word of mouth. And I will just say in relation to, you know, films getting into festivals, I mean, with films like Sundance, um, when you look at the numbers of films that are screened, it's important to know for those, you know, people listening that you say aren't sort of aware of the, of the, of the sort of the relationships is that somewhere between four and six or 8,000 films will apply. 
So to be in that small number of 16 is a really great honor yeah. to, you know, to get down to that. Um, uh, so please stand by. Uh, ben directed that last year um, and it went to, you know, it's been to a few festivals. Um, but we sort of bypassed the big festival circuit to go down this other release pro process, which right. is something is new to me because it's opening in theatres and on, you know, video on demand at the same time okay. across the US. I am acutely aware that despite the fact that it's Sunday, you have yet another meeting uh, to attend because this is what you do. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been really a lot of fun to do this. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's the, the whole, from September on is a busy time of year for everybody because of the awards season and films coming out and so on and so forth. So, mm. and the Sundance thing particularly. So not all my Sundays are two meetings back to back or whatever, but you know, this is a busy time for me. And, yeah. and to be able to sort of be, I think this is maybe the first podcast interview I've ever done actually. Oh, really? So, so here's oh, my well, I'm glad that I have taken your podcast virginity. Yeah, go, yes. absolutely. You know, but it's been terrific to chat with you, and and I, I love the idea that that people in Australia will hear about this because yeah. oh, this uh, is international. I mean, oh, we've it's got international. Yeah, terrific. Absolutely. Well, I'm hoping that Please Stand By will open in Australia um, around April. Right. Uh, that's where that is, and I cannot predict what will happen about. Uh, the Catcher was a spy because after Sundance, depending on who picks it up for distribution, mm. they may or may not want to do what we did with the sessions, which is wait through until September and then go to more festivals and build up some stuff. And depending on whether they feel that some of the cast, I mean, we've got Paul Rudd, Paul Giamatti, Guy Pearce, another I terrific know. Australian. Yes. Um, I, you know, if they decide to go for the awards thing, then the film may not come out till later in 2018. So mm. we'll see. But it's it's exciting to to have two films possibly opening in 2018 and to be able to talk to you about it. Yes, I know. So that's great. Oh, well, I hope to ask you many more questions in the years to come. But, Judy, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ella. It's been great. You've been listening to Take Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes or your favourite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.